0: Okay, we are in in 1 Samuel chapter 15. Let's start reading from 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 1. Then Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people over Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he set himself against him on the way while he was coming, out out of, coming up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has. And do not spare him, but put to death both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Then Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Talaim, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. Saul came to the city of Amalek and set an ambush in the valley. Saul said to the Kenites, Go go down from among the Amalekites, so that I do not destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the sons of Israel when they came up from Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. So Saul defeated the the Amalekites from Havilah, as you go to shore, which is east of Egypt. And he captured Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive, and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, and the lambs, and all that was good, and were not willing to destroy them utterly, but everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. Okay, so this chapter is a chapter on the second big disobedience of Saul. Uh, the first one was in chapter 13, and in chapter 13, because of his disobedience, he lost the dynasty. The dynasty would have progressed through Saul's family, but because of the disobedience for, for offering up the offering himself and not waiting for, for Samuel, he lost the dynasty. In this chapter, he's about to lose not just the dynasty, but his own kingship as well. So, we knew from chapter 13 that Jonathan was never going to become king. And now we'll know from chapter 15 that, that Saul will lose the kingdom himself. There is a promise that God had made to blot out Amalek. If you look back in Exodus chapter, chapter uh, 17, Exodus chapter 17. So here, remember in Exodus, they're, they're, coming, they're just coming out of Egypt. And... Uh, if you look in, in Exodus chapter 17, verse 8, it says, Then Amalek came and fought against Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose men for us and go out and fight against Amalek. And so you see that, that this is just when they were coming out of Egypt, Amalek, the Amalekites, fought against, against Israel. And look in in that same chapter, Exodus 17, verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this in a book as a memorial and recite it to Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar and named, named it, The Lord is my banner. And he said, The Lord has sworn the Lord will have war against Amalek from generation to generation. So you see, there was a promise now. This is 400 years Earlier than the events that we're reading about in First Samuel chapter 15, so 400 years earlier, God made a promise that He was going to wipe out the Amalekites for having attacked Israel for the things, having attacked Israel when they came out of Egypt. God never forgot this. In fact, God told told um, Moses, "Write this in a book as a memorial and recite it to Joshua." Sometimes to write things down and to define things that you are going to do that are important to you in your life. It's good to write them down and recite it and have it like a memorial. For example, a, a, a student uh, who, who's actually in the class, who's away for the summer, emailed me that he met this wonderful young lady. And he just went on and on, paragraph after paragraph, about how wonderful this young lady is. You know, how she loves the Lord how she's nice, she's kind, she's gentle, she's helpful, she's a servant, and all these things. I'm thinking, wow, this is really an amazing young lady. But he wanted to know, uh, uh, how should I order the relationship? And, and, and so, you know, I emailed him back, you know, talk to her father and her mother. If her father and mother are not believers, it can sometimes be a little bit difficult if they don't see the same way. But nonetheless, you should get permission from her father uh, because the scriptures are actually very, very clear in 1 Corinthians that a man has authority over his daughter's marriage. And so I said, talk to her father. Also, you need to, he was asking me, you know, what are the limits? And I said, the limits are as you define. Now, the Bible in the New Testament tells us that a man should not touch a woman. It says, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. And I said, you can define it as you want to define it. You can define it that you'll only hold hands and not that. I said, "I, I think that you should refrain from hugging her. Because what happens is when her breasts rub up against you and your crotch against her, then things start happening that are hard to control. And I said, you know, if you're asking me my opinion, this is my opinion. And uh uh and my basis is, it's good for a man not to touch a woman, is what the scriptures tell us. I said, but whatever you decide upon, it's up to you. It's good to write it down, and then talk with her, and the two of you decide upon that. And if you both decide upon that, and agree upon that, and pray to God for help, you'll have success in this area, as long as this thing is defined. So we see the same thing, where, where God tells... Moses, write it down in a book and recite it to Joshua. I want to make sure that this thing gets passed down. And so, you, you see that, that there was this promise that God had made. Now, Amalek, it says, so who were the Amalekites? Amalek was the grandson of Esau. And it tells us this in Genesis 36, verse 12 and 16. It mentions it again in the, in the genealogies in 1 Chronicles 1, and 36, that Amalek was the grandson of Esau. Uh, but now, you know, this is 400 years later, so Amalek isn't around anymore, but Agag is king. Uh, so, so um, it, it goes on and on. There's many verses which talk about how the Amalekites were the enemies of Israel. There was a curse now that God had proclaimed upon them. This is called the, the harem, harem curse. This word harem in Hebrew is actually the word that's currently used in Hebrew for boycott, so if, if they're going to have a boycott, they call it this word harem, but harem to them was very clear, you know, we say, well, you know, God said utterly destroy them, man and woman, infant and child, beast, animal, everything, and they kept back the good ones, and to us it's like, well, what's the big deal, they, they, they killed everyone except Agag, the king, everyone they could get their hands on, and they killed all the animals except for the nice ones, so what's the big deal here? Why is it such a big deal? To them, they really knew what this meant. This this harem uh, 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 proclamation actually is very similar to other proclamations that have been made. But look in Deuteronomy chapter 13. You'll see what this means when God proclaims utter destruction. This was very clear to them. It's not that clear to us in our generation, but it was very clear to them. In Deuteronomy chapter 13, read from verse 12. If you hear in one of your cities, which the Lord your God has given you to live in, anyone saying, some worthless men have gone out from among you and have seduced the inhabitants of their city, saying, let us go and serve other gods whom you have not known, then you shall investigate and search out the inquiry thoroughly. If it is true that the matter established that this abomination has been done among you, you shall surely strike the inhabitants of that city with the edge of the sword, utterly destroying it, and all that is in it, and its cattle with the edge of the sword. Then you shall gather all its booty in the middle of the open square and burn the city and its booty with fire as a whole burnt offering to the Lord your God, and it shall be in ruin forever. It shall never be rebuilt. Nothing from that which is put under the band shall cling to your hands in order that the Lord your God may turn from His burning anger and show mercy on, upon you, and so on. So you see, there, and there are many other such pro- proclamations throughout the scriptures that predate this event in, in 1 Samuel. So they well knew what utter destruction meant under this Harem uh, 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 proclamation. They knew what they were supposed to do. The Amalekites were actually uh, uh, nomads. So when it says in, um, in, in verse 5, Saul came to the city of Amalek. It, Amalek. it was probably some fortified village, but there were no walls there because these were, these were uh, uh, um, nomads. In this verse, interestingly, you see this curse that God always remembered concerning the Amalekites. At the same time, there's another group living among them. That's the Kenites. And the Kenites the Kenites were a branch of Midian, the scripture tells us. Remember the Midianites, it was... Uh, uh, Moses' father-in-law was Jethro. He was a Midianite. Ken- Kenites were a branch of Midianites. And they always blessed Israel. Always were kind to Israel. Uh, uh, Moses' father-in-law was kind to Moses when he went into the wilderness. Moses' father-in-law met Moses again as he was coming out af- out of Egypt with the children of Israel. Gave him good advice on, on how to run the kingdom. And also in, in the book of Judges, verses 1:16, it talks about how the Kenites had settled among Israel. They were very good friends with Israel. In, in uh, Judges 4:11 and 17, in, in 17 through 22, in Judges chapter 4, it talks about when King Sisera from Assyria had attacked. It was actually a Kenite. It was a Kenite woman who had driven the peg through the man's temple. That was a Kenite woman. Again, they were, again, very supportive of Israel and always stood with Israel. So, in this one passage, you see this blessing and the curse that it says in Genesis chapter 12, verse 13. God told, God told Abraham, "...those who bless you, I will bless, those who curse you, I will curse." In this passage, you see both the blessing and the cursing of God. Throughout the generations, those who bless you, I will bless, those who curse you, I will curse." You see the cursing that comes upon Amalek for coming against the children of God, Israel. You see the, the, the kindness of God to bless those who are supporting Israel. And that's why I say, to this day, be careful what you say against the Jews. Now, not that they do everything right, not that the present government that they have is kind and gracious and does everything right. But it's best to refrain from all sorts of attacks upon this group of people because it's something special about them. Those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. Does not mean you have to agree with all their their, their political stands. But when people start coming against them, better that you refrain from comment, from saying anything against them. And if you have a way to bless them, bless them. Because that promise remains, those who bless you, I will bless, those who curse you, I will curse. You see both facets of the covenant of Abraham in this passage. Okay, so you see that they spared some of the best of the sheep and the best of the oxen, and they did not kill Agag, the king. Okay, let's pick it up at verse 10, First Samuel chapter 15, verse 10. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, saying, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not carried out my commands. And Samuel was distressed and cried out to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, and it was told Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself. Then he turned and proceeded on down to Gilgal. Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord, I have carried out the command of the Lord. But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears, and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? And Samuel said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen, to sacrifice to the Lord your God, but the rest we have utterly destroyed. Then Samuel said to Saul, Wait, and let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And he said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, Is it not true? That you were little in your own eyes. You were made head of the tribes of Israel. And the Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord set you on a mission. And said go and utterly destroy the sinners the Amalekites. And fight against them until they are exterminated. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord. And rush upon the spoil. And did what is evil in the sight of the Lord. And then, Samuel, then Saul said to Samuel. I did obey the voice of the Lord. And went on the mission on which the Lord sent me. And have brought back Agag the king of the Amalekites. And have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took some of the spoil, sheep and oxen, and the choicest of things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offering and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is this the sin of divination, and insubordination is this the iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you from being king. So, you see that, and this is one of the most classic passages, this, these words that, that Samuel says, one of the most classic pa- passages from the Old Testament. And you see, he has now rejected Saul from being king. In God's eyes, Saul is no longer king, but a usurper. Uh, he is no longer the king. This caused him not just to lose his dynasty, th- dynasty was lost in chapter 13, kingship is lost in chapter 15. Samuel is so concerned about King Saul that when God tells him how he disobeyed the command, this Karim curse over this land and it kept back Agag and some of the animals, it says that that Samuel prayed all night about this. He just couldn't sleep. It bothered him so much because Samuel didn't come and say, I told you so. It was Samuel who wanted so much for Saul to succeed. He had wanted him to succeed. And it says that, that uh, uh, God regret, regretted that he had made Saul king. And for God to be unchangeable, for God to be unchangeable, he must Reward obedience and penalize disobedience. Because this is what he says he would do. So this is very much within the understanding and foreknowledge of God. He rewards obedience and he penalizes disobedience. So it says that, that, that Saul, had, in verse 12, had set up a monument for himself and then p- proceeded and turned down to Gilgal. So you see this elevation of Saul in his own eyes. This elevation of Saul that he builds now, this monument to himself. So rather than just giving glory to God, he built a monument, it says, for himself. He built a monument in verse 12. And then when when Samuel comes, Saul is so blind to this, he says, I've fulfilled everything God has called me to do. But remember, to them it was very clear what they had to do. They could not offer up any spoil that was under the ban. They couldn't do it. They weren't allowed to do it. So for him to now use the excuse, well, they took all the best stuff for a sacrifice, was a lie. Because he knew that this could not be done when something is under an utter destruction ban, this Karim ban. They are not allowed to offer it up. So he fails to take responsibility for what he does. And then God speaks to him that God, through Samuel... When he speaks in verse 22, and remember, when Samuel speaks as the prophet of God in the Old Testament, or as an apostle in the New Testament would speak, this is as if God is speaking. This doesn't happen the same today. So if an individual says, you know, I'm a prophet of God, the words they say may very much be godly, but it is not like scriptural strength. Because very often they'll be right, very often they'll be wrong. And the scripture said, if a prophet was ever wrong in the Old Testament, they should be killed. That same thing does not transfer to the New Testament. There is no such command upon us to do this. Nor is this saying that if somebody comes with some new word, that we are, we are to, to hang on to it, like with this. this went, but when Samuel spoke, this was as if God himself was speaking. He says, has the Lord as much delight in burnt offering sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of lambs. For rebellion is the sin of divination, and insubordination is iniquity and and idolatry. Now, if we look on down in verse 24, Then Saul says to Samuel, I have sinned, I have indeed transgressed the command of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and listened to their voice. Now therefore please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you for you have rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And Samuel turned and and Saul seized the edge of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. So you see that, that on this occasion... On this occasion, he lost the kingdom. Um, In verse 17, Samuel had said, Isn't that true that you were little in your own eyes? You were made head of the tribes of Israel, and the Lord has anointed you king over Israel. So now let's take all this information we've got and bring it back to some lesson that we can hold on to today. Let's think about some lesson that we can hold on to. First of all, you say, well, why doesn't God appreciate this? The people kept the very best stuff they claimed for an offering. Doesn't God really enjoy the offering? Doesn't He enjoy these animals being offered up to Him? All the best things for Him. You know, God should really like this. And the amazing thing is, these offerings that we give to God are not so much for God as they are for us. So in other words, when I learn to give of what God has given me. Not not that my $5 does anything for God. He doesn't need the money. It's what that does for me when I give it. And this is why what we give should be something that takes from us something subs- substantive. Because remember what Jesus said to the woman of, of the woman who gave the widow's mite? He said, she has taken out of her sustenance, but you, to the Pharisees, he said, but you have taken out of your surplus. So in other words, if I just give out of what's left over, that isn't sufficient according to what Jesus says. It should come out of my sustenance. It should affect me. But it's not that God needs my money. He really doesn't need it. Whether I give or not, He's still going to be the same God and live the same way. The offering is for us. What it does in my heart. So when we give, it's for us. So, you will see, and and I have seen this, I have seen men that will cheat in business and always give a tenth portion to the church. And they will in some way justify it. Well, it's really doing a lot for God's work. It is doing nothing for God's work. Doing nothing. Because you can't cheat in this. I've seen this many times where men will work to the exclusion of their families and neglect being the father and the husband that they need to be and say, well, you know, I really got to work and it's important to work and what's the problem because I'm tithing, I'm giving. And this is really good for the church to be able to give all this. No, it's better for the church for your marriage to stay intact. For your children to grow up godly. And so we can have the same sort of view. As if we are doing God some sort of favor to give to Him. We're not. This is for us. God doesn't care about a bunch of sheep being offered up. He wants to see what it does in the lives of the individuals who are offering it up. That's the thing. Now, the other thing is that Saul was really quite small in his own eyes. Even though he was head and shoulders above all men, he felt that he was from, from uh, uh, you know the smallest of the tribes, which he was. Benjamin was a tribe that almost didn't even exist anymore because of their disobedience. They'd almost all been, been killed off. So he was from the smallest tribe. He was from not a very significant family. Now, his father was well off. But it wasn't, you know, politically connected or anything. And so much so that when they came to make him king, he was hiding among the baggage. So he was humble in his own eyes. And one could even say, uh, uh, almost to to a point where he couldn't function. Because he was so insecure in his abilities. But now what had happened? Now this grand king stands up. He's head and shoulders above all men. Good looking guy. He has all of these successes. So if you remember in the, in the end of chapter 14, there was this constant warfare, but it chose one kingdom after another, after another, after another, that God had given him success in. So all of this pride starts coming in. This is so insidious. Remember where you are. You feel, you know, you're, you're pretty lowly. You're just a student. You're not... This will sneak up on you so fast. Pride. It will sneak up on you and take you over so quick. In Proverbs chapter 16 verse 18, it says pride goes before fall. Turn to Proverbs chapter 16. Proverbs chapter 16. Reading from verse 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. And you will come to a point in your life, I hope, where you will thank God that pride comes before destruction. Because God, in His mercy, when we start getting proud, things start falling apart. Let me give you an example. So when my research group can sometimes start doing really well, and it starts getting, you, you know, and the first time this started happening, it was just wonderful. We started getting lots of money, lots of grants, the group was growing and everything. And I noticed something, that I was becoming far less kind to people. I said, well, you're a Christian. Yeah, I'm a Christian, which means that I'm just like everybody else, but Jesus has saved me. That's what it means. And I started becoming less kind to people, and less kind to the secretaries, and less kind to the staff, and more intolerant of the faculty that couldn't bring grant money in to support the department because I had my, you know, little bits of money in my, my group. And then it was interesting, you know, the thing about grants is they come in cycles. And after three years they expire and you write for more and you write for more. And guess what? I had this big group, but my grants weren't getting funded. They weren't getting renewed. And God really got my attention. So much so, I had all these people looking to me for support. They, you know, I have to pay them, pay their, you know, support them. And, My grants are drying up. And I'm trying. It wasn't wasn't for lack of work. Pride goes before a fall. And, you know, this is over a period of a year and a half. I'm struggling. And I fall on my knees and I'm begging God, have mercy. And then I realized. Then you know what happened? I got a lot nicer to people. And a lot more tolerant of people around me. Who are struggling and having a rough time. And kinder to the secretaries. This thing that pride goes before destruction. You will thank God one day for the destructions that come in when we get prideful. You'll thank God for it. I thank God that He gets my attention. Because pride is so ugly. And it's apparent to everybody except ourselves. And it's like we have this big, big written thing on our foreheads. Pride. Everybody sees it except us. And now imagine Saul. Here he is, bigger than anybody else. For a man to be head and shoulders above anybody, I mean, that's got to be tremendous to have to carry that in a right way. So he's a good-looking man. He's big, he's strong, he's successful. And then all of this starts to slip in. All of this starts to slip in. And it's hard to deal with this. You know, people say, you know, this basketball player, look at the way they act. No, I would be worse. Can you imagine if I was 19 years old and everybody thought I was tremendous? And I was, you know, six foot eight basketball player making $10 million a year. And everybody cheering me on and thinking I'm so great. I am telling you, I don't know about you. I will speak for myself. I would be... Terrible! I would be so prideful. I would be mean, angry, unkind. That these men survive as long as they do amazes me. See, hey, look, you know, they're sleeping around, they sleep with this person, they cheat on their wives. Well, what do you expect with all of those accolades and everyone telling them they're so great? If me, the way I look, You know, get caught up in all sorts of prideful things. Imagine what I would be like if I looked like them. You know, I was I was talking to one guy recently and and this guy in in my eyes is is really macho. I mean he's six foot four and a handsome young guy and just I see his struggles. Because when he walks in the room, all the women look at him. I have never had that. All the women look away when I walk in the room. And I've come to a point in my life where I'm so thankful for the way God has made me because it protects me. Do you see what I mean? It protects me. In in Isaiah 53, it, it gives us a snapshot of what Jesus looked like. It says, He had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon Him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to Him. There was nothing in Jesus physically that made people look to Him. And these pictures you see of Jesus can't be right. Because in every picture, He looks European, first of all. He doesn't look Jewish. He doesn't have a big nose in these pictures. And, and you know, He's tall, He's handsome, He's strong. He's... There's none of this. The picture that the Bible gives us of Jesus is there was nothing in Him physically that was attractive. And it says it was as if from one whom men hide their face, there was—he had no physical appearance that was attractive. So if you ever feel yourself unattractive, thank God that you look like Jesus. He protects us by this. I don't think I could ever survive. I could ever survive if I looked like this 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 guy that I know where all the women turn their head when he, walks, when he walks in the room, they all look at Him. Like He is really something. And the amount of temptation that comes His way is amazing. I could just see it. I'm like, God, protect this young man. God, protect him. You know, so I'm not judging anybody. I'm just saying, God, thank You for the mercy that You have upon me and thank You that You use the false To keep me from the, from, from the, the pride that I could slip into. So if you, if you look at this, at this portion, it, it comes down. Here's the summary of this chapter is that, is that, um, uh, to be unchangeable, God must bless obedience and curse disobedience. That we see. God is unchangeable and he blesses obedience and he curses disobedience. Saul's striking appearance led to pride. His striking appearance and his success led him to pride. Uh, His bravery... Saul's bravery, we see from the end of chapter 14, made way, gave way to recklessness. It's another facet we need to watch out for. Bravery is wonderful. But you take take a, a... You know, particularly brave young men, and I see it because I've worked a lot in consulting with the military, and I meet a lot of fighter pilots, and generally, you know, the real cocky young men, and in some ways you want them that way, that have little concern for their own physical lives, because they fly these, these jets a gazillion miles an hour, and they fly them into these very dangerous situations, and they love it. I mean, they love it. They love to have to go into the dangerous situations. Just love it. And, and, you know, you look at them and you thank God for making young men like this, that, that, that have that sort of passion and just love it. And these guys say, we are not returning with these bombs. When we go, we're going to drop them one way or another. They're going to drop them. They're not returning with the bombs. I met an old guy who's going to be with the Lord. He, he was a fighter pilot in World War II, in the Korean War, and in Vietnam. And uh, he was talking about how... They loved to engage the Japanese fighters in the air. He says the Japanese would always run away when they'd see them they'd chase them down. They were looking for dogfights. He says only one dogfight did he ever get into. You know, he did a lot of bombing and strafing, but he wanted more dogfights, but he says the Japanese would always run. But, you, you know, you see this, but what happens in these young men's lives is you also see a recklessness that can come in. So courage is a wonderful thing, but it can make way for recklessness. And we have to watch out for that. Paul went, uh, I'm sorry, Saul went from being spirit empowered to being demonized. And so we'll see that later. And so he starts well and he ends badly. And for us, the lesson is this. Pray to God that you don't end badly. You're starting out well, learning from the Word of God. Pray to God that you don't end badly. And if you say, no, I won't end badly, that is pride. You need all the more to fall on your knees and say, God, I pray that I don't end badly. Because remember, pride goes before destruction and the haughty spirit before a fall. I pray that I don't end badly. In fact, I have prayed to God. I've said, Lord, if, if ever I am going to destroy my marriage through an immoral relationship, Father, please take my life before that happens don't let me bring that pain upon my wife and upon my children and defame your name Lord I would rather die than have this happen pray to God that he protects you from this let's pray Father thank you so much for your mercies and your grace thank you so much Lord for the grace of God Father, I pray in Jesus' name for these young people that You would keep them from being exalted in their own eyes, that they will remember that it is God who brought them up. Even as You brought up Saul, You took him, and he was little in his own eyes. And as You have picked them up and brought them up, Father, protect them and cause them to seek You and to seek Your face and to constantly be before You saying, Father, keep me from pride. Lord, Your grace be upon them, I pray. In the name of Jesus, Amen.